Well, good morning, church. It is so sweet to be here. Thank you to everyone who uh, brought food and who ate food and who did set up and tear down and flowers. And this is a uh, uh, this is how the church should work, just like this. So, thank you so much for your labors, and it is so good to be here with you. I uh, uh, I'm grateful. Um, for an experience I had seven months after I became a believer. I was not raised in a home that proclaimed Christ at all. I had never heard the gospel until I was about 19 or 20 years old. Seven months after my conversion, I was in my room reading my Bible, reading the, the prophet Isaiah. I didn't know anything about Isaiah. And then one day I came across chapter 53 and everything changed. And as I came across verses four through six, especially, and I saw that there's this one to come in the future who is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. I thought this is really, really interesting because this sounds a lot like Christ. But my little understanding of the Bible tells me that Isaiah was written in the Old Testament. And yet here I see Christ. I came to discover that it was a prophecy about Christ made centuries before he ever walked on the face of the planet. And in that moment, I remember thinking in my, my, grum, my grimy, grungy room, thinking, this changes everything. This, this 8th century BC prophecy about Christ changes absolutely everything. And it was then, in that moment, that I resolved that I would spend the rest of my life telling people about this. So I have a long history with this text. And I think we all... Uh, have seen enough news and TV shows to know that when someone commits premeditated murder, they plan out everything beforehand, don't they? Even down to the most minute detail. Think about it. They've got their victim chosen. They've got a motive. They've got the time and the place picked out. They've got the murder weapon selected. And then when the time is right, they execute their plan. And what you have to come to grips with is that in eternity past, infinite centuries and ages and millenniums before creation, when nothing existed except God, what you have to come to grips with is that even then, a premeditated murder was planned. And what is nearly incomprehensible to human logic is that it was God himself who planned it. You see, before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit conspired together to pull off the greatest murder plot in history. And like any other premeditated murder, they had their victim chosen and he had been chosen from all eternity. And it was Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. They had a motive for their murder. And it was the most loving motive that exists in the universe, namely the accomplishment of the very plan of salvation itself. And not only did the Trinity have a victim and a motive, but they also had a location, a crime scene for the murder. And it was Golgotha, the place of the skull. They picked the time down to the second and it was the exact moment when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. They had a murder weapon selected and it was a cross. 
a Roman instrument of torture and death. And then when the time was right, they executed their plan by the father crushing his own son. You see, what this was, was the eternal murder mystery lovingly planned by the Trinity when the only thing that existed was the Trinity. This was a captivating collaboration by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to save those whom the Father had chosen from every tribe and nation and tongue and people. See, to make sense of Christianity or even the world for that matter, you have to come to grips with the fact that the slaughtering of the Son of God is the centerpiece of all human history. And are you ready for this? It is also the centerpiece of all divine history. God himself was crucified on a tree he created by men he created, and this was always the plan. And that premeditated murder and a few other things also, that is exactly what Isaiah reveals in his passage we're going to look at this morning. And and what just has to clobber you, what just has to unravel you is that this chapter, chapter 53, is a prophetic masterpiece penned by Isaiah describing events that would happen. And he described them 700 years, over 700 years before any of them ever even happened. What that means is, is that the Lamb of God being slain for sinners, this was not an afterthought. This was not plan B. The cross was not some last-minute roll of the dice in an attempt to save sinners. No, what this was was a captivating conspiracy lovingly premeditated by the Trinity when the only thing that existed was the Trinity. What you have to understand is that the death of Christ, this was an exquisite death. This was a perfect death. This was a sovereign death. This was an eternally significant death. Why? Because although all people die, only one death was designed to fulfill the plan of salvation, and it was the death of the Son of God himself. And I just want you to know that that today, being Resurrection Sunday, this is the ideal day to talk about the death of Christ. Do you know why? Because there is an inseparable relationship between the death of Christ and and the resurrection of Christ. You see, the resurrection is not good news unless the death that Christ died purchased and paid for our salvation in full. And the death that Christ died, it is not good news unless he defies the laws of science and raises himself from the dead and claims his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, which is exactly what happened. And so all I want for you this morning is that your hands would tremble as you hold the sacred text of Scripture in your hands and you see the plan of redemption unfold on the page centuries before it ever even happened, which means our destination is Isaiah chapter 53. So here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three riveting features. Three riveting features of the death of Christ designed to cause you to treasure Christ and the salvation which he purchased with his death. 
That's where we're going. Three riveting features of the death of Christ designed to cause you not only to treasure Christ, but also, also the salvation which he purchased with his death. So here we go. The first riveting feature of Christ's death is this. Number one, you need to know the substitutionary nature of his death. You need to know the substitutionary nature of his death. Now, what makes Isaiah 53 so poignant and and even overwhelming is that chapter 53 comes right in the middle of some of the most audacious chapters in the entire Bible. What I mean is, all the way back in chapter 4, Yahweh begins to reveal his plan not only for the people of Israel, but also for the entirety of human history. And included in that plan is not only the redemption and the regeneration and the restoration of the people of Israel in particular, but also it includes a plan where salvation would reach even to the very ends of the earth. In other words, God has been unfolding through Isaiah's preaching chapter after chapter after chapter, this over-the-top, audacious plan to bring the entire planet back into subjection and establish a global kingdom on this planet to reverse the effects of sin, to save sinners from hell, and to make all things be the way they ought to be. That's the plan. The question is, how how do you go from point A to point B, let alone to point Z? In other words, how do you go from the mess we're in now to a kingdom on the planet and paradise that we would experience just like Adam and Eve did before sin entered in the world? That is impossible. That is impractical. That is irrational. This is never going to happen unless unless you send a divine savior to the planet who would die in the place of hell deserving sinners like you and me. And that is exactly why chapter 53 exists. Look at verse one. We'll begin where Isaiah begins. He actually begins back in chapter 52. But notice what he says in chapter 53, verse one. He says, who has believed our message? And toward whom, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? This is a rhetorical question. He's not asking for a show of hands here. What he's doing is he's making a cry of desperation. You see, he's responding to something that happened. And what's happened is that even in his day, get this, even in his own day, very, very few people believed what he had to say about the Messiah. And what did he have to say about the Messiah? Look at verse two. But he, that is the Messiah, he grew up before God, before him, like a tender shoot. And like a root from a parched land, he had no appearance and he had no splendor than we should see him and he had no form that we should desire him. Do you see the irony in the text? the secret weapon of God's salvation plan, God's ace in the hole, who would make all things be the way they ought to be, the one in whom we should place all of our hopes for redemption. Get this, he was just not at all who you would have expected him to be. 
Look at the language in the text that Isaiah uses. I mean, out of all the ways you could use to describe the coming redeemer to make all things new, to make all things the way they ought to be, he just doesn't use any language that you would expect him to use. He doesn't describe him as a warrior or a king or a lion or some war steed, something that would have communicated triumph or victory. He, he doesn't use any of that. Instead, he describes him as a tiny, little, fragile plant growing in the desert that you almost wouldn't even notice. The point is, the emergence of the Redeemer onto the scene of human history would be unexpected and unanticipated. It would be sort of cloak and dagger, incognito. He would be seemingly insignificant and unnoticed. He would be inglorious and unimpressive at first. I mean, you would just never pick him out in a crowd and say, of course, well, he's clearly the one who's going to make all things new, make all things be the way they ought to be. Here is the Redeemer. Here he is. You would never do that. And that's exactly how this played out in history, isn't it? I mean, this little baby born in some dirty stable behind a village hotel. Seriously, this this is going to shake the Roman Empire? (laughs) This little fragile infant born to insignificant parents, this is the secret weapon to God's redemptive plan? Are you kidding? This baby born in some dumpy village, this would be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Are you kidding me? What is this, a joke? Oh, it is no joke. It is the sovereignty of God and it is glorious. But the thing is, it only gets worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Look at verse 3. Still describing this servant, this Messiah to come, it says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one like whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is incredible despised, forsaken, unwanted, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, scorned by the ones he came to save. This is an outrage. And Isaiah's just getting warmed up. Look what he says in verse four. This is breathtaking. He says, truly our griefs he carried and our sorrows he bore them. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I mean, do you see it? It's one thing, it's one thing that verse 3 just predicted that the Messiah to come would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but it is a whole different ball game to say that the sufferings he would endure, he would endure in the place of another. That's exactly what verse 4 just said. Our sorrows, our griefs, he bore them, he carried them, he endured them in our place. But notice again in verse 4, the irony of the text. Isaiah says, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten, or even literally crushed by God and afflicted. I mean, do you see what Isaiah does here? He, he includes himself as if he had personally watched the Messiah die. And he says, look, I just want you to know from our perspective, 
It really, really looked like he was being punished for his own crimes. We all looked at his thrashed, mangled body, hanging there like a lump of bloody flesh, and we just all assumed that he was being punished by God for his own sins, which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, picture yourself in Jerusalem on that dark and gloomy day, standing before three men who are crucified, two thieves and Christ in the middle. Each were bloodied and suffering. Each were in agony and excruciating torment. Each were bearing the consequences for sin. It all looked the same. But newsflash, it was not the same. Two were bearing the consequences for their own sin and just one, just one was enduring the consequences for sin committed by others. One, only one of them was bearing the weight of the avalanche of the wrath of God in the place of others, which is exactly where Isaiah goes in verse five. Look at the text. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. You know, if you have kids, you know that uh, there are some words you don't say at the dinner table, some words too gruesome and icky to say at the dinner table. There are some words that are too inappropriate to say out loud in public when telling a story, and yet those are the very kinds of words that Isaiah uses to describe the suffering of the Messiah. You notice that he says that the Messiah would be pierced. That is the strongest term that exists in the Hebrew language to speak of a violent and excruciating death. This is not a quiet death surrounded in the hospital, surrounded by flowers and loved ones. No, this is the kind of death that is just too excruciating to watch. I can't, I can't leave this. Shut it off. I've got to leave the room. And not only that, but Isaiah says that the Messiah would be crushed for our iniquities. That Hebrew word describes a fatal crushing that kills its victims. This is a slaughter. This is a mutilation. And the reasons why Isaiah is being so graphic and bloody are obvious, right? Isaiah, it's it's not for shock value. It is for salvation value. Isaiah splatters us with blood as it were because he wants us to know a how serious our sin really was before God, and B, he wants us to know that this is what it took to save sinners. Because if sinners were ever going to get saved, if they were ever going to have the treasure of salvation, this is how it had to go down. There wasn't another way. If we wanted peace, he had to be punished. If we wanted to get well, he had to be wounded. If we wanted salvation, he had to be slaughtered. If we wanted mercy, he had to be murdered. You see, what he was was the lightning rod of God. 
He was lifted up on a Roman torture device and he absorbed the white hot lightning of God's wrath as a substitute for sinners. He took the infinite voltage that we deserved upon himself so that we don't have to become consumed in the flames of God's anger. See, never, ever, ever forget that it took the slaughtering of the Son of God to save your sinful soul. This was a real transaction. There was nothing theoretical about his death. He wasn't dying, you know, just just kind of as a good example. No, this was a real transaction where real wrath for real sins was really being executed upon the Son of God as if he had really committed them. And that changes everything about our salvation, doesn't it? But then you notice, of course, in verse 6, that Isaiah calls us sheep. Now, don't make a mistake here. Sheep are cute and kind of fluffy, and we want to pet them, but this is not meant to be a compliment. Notice that he calls us sheep who have gone astray. You see, the point is, we were all born with the spiritual intelligence of the stupidest animals on the face of the planet because from birth we blindly wander from the one who alone can satisfy our souls. And yet in the greatest murder mystery of all time, look at the sweet irony of the text in verse 6. He says, all of us like sheep went astray. Each turned to his own way, but Yahweh struck him with the iniquity of us all. Notice very carefully, it was not Satan who struck the servant. It was God. God did that. He delivered up his own son. Romans 8.32, but God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And that word to strike in the Hebrew has the idea of a violent execution. And yet, and yet it is a vicarious execution. It is a substitution. One died in the place of the very people who deserved to die. This is exactly how Peter describes it. 1 Peter 3.18 says, But Christ died for sins once for all. Notice, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous so that he should bring you to God. That was the secret weapon of the plan of salvation. And it means everything. And it brings us to the second riveting feature of his death. Number two. You need to know the sacrificial nature of his death. You need to know not only the substitutionary work of his death, you need to know the sacrificial nature of his death also. And if you've ever used a GPS or the Google Maps app, and you have, then you know that the blue line on the screen indicates your direction, and the red dot at the end indicates your destination. And Isaiah has done us a real favor here in chapter 53. You see, he has let us know that the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament, with its lambs and bulls and goats as offerings for sin, he has let us know that the entire sacrificial system was God's Google Maps app to direct humanity to the destination where salvation could ultimately be found. In other words... All the sacrificial 
system in the Old Testament was the blue line designed to get you to the salvation destination of Jesus Christ. And that red salvation dot at the end is exactly where Isaiah goes. Look at verse 7. He says, he, still speaking about him, the servant, the Messiah, he was hard-pressed, he was afflicted, notice this, but he was not opening his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he was led, and like sheep before its shearers, he was speechless, but he was not opening his mouth. Do you see it? Without resistance, the Messiah willingly gave himself into the clutches of his killers. Why? You know why. He wasn't some martyr. He wasn't just dying for a good cause. He wasn't just taking one for the team. No, the language that Isaiah uses here is provocative and unmistakable. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. He was a sheep before its shearers. Do you hear it? This is Levitical, priestly, sacrificial language. This is everywhere in this passage. This sacrificial Levitical language is everywhere. You notice back in chapter 52, verse 15, what does it say? It says that he would sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is the exact same word used to describe priests when they would sprinkle the altar with blood. In verse 10, Isaiah says that the Messiah would offer his life, note this, as a guilt offering. A guilt offering, what does that sound like? That is the exact sacrifice described in Leviticus 5, 6, 7, 14, and in chapter 19. And then in verse 12, it says that the Messiah would bear people's iniquities. He bore their iniquities. That word to bear is the exact same term used in Leviticus 16.22 to describe this scapegoat bearing the sins of the people and then disappearing into the wilderness. Isaiah couldn't be more clear, could he? You see, Jesus Christ was like a lamb to the slaughter. In full knowledge and awareness of the cross that awaited him, knowing, knowing that this was the very transaction needed to fulfill the very plan of salvation. And yet there are more details to unfold. And and somehow, as if it were possible, they're more intriguing than the last. Look at verse 8. It says, From the oppression of justice, he was taken away, And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? In English and in Hebrew, that's an extremely complicated sentence. But being complicated aside, you can still smell the corruption, can't you? Isaiah just said that by the oppression of justice... The Messiah would be taken away and led to execution. He would be taken to a violent and unjust trial. In other words, seven centuries before it ever even happened, Isaiah predicts that the Messiah would be violently arrested and then through a corrupt and unjust trial, he would be sentenced to death because to get a sinless man crucified, to get a sinless man murdered, you have to break every law in the book. And that's exactly what happened. And yet... Uh Ha ha, the joke's on them. 
because what the rulers of Christ's day did not know, what they did not understand, that with all their scheming, with all their strategizing, with all their witty plotting to put an end to Christ, what they did not know was that the whole time they were playing right into the sovereign hands of God. And yet here's where the real intrigue begins. Look at verse 9. And they assigned his grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death, although he had done no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. Notice, it says that they made his grave with the wicked. This is interesting. This is actually a detail that the Gospels don't tell us. The they here are his killers, And it says that they made his grave with the wicked. Meaning what? Meaning after they killed him, get this, they had all intentions of making his grave with the wicked. What that means is after they killed him, they planned on throwing his corpse into a massive grave reserved for criminals because that's what you do with convicts on death row after you kill them. That was their plan. That's what Isaiah is saying. That was their plan to do that. You see, even his murderers wanted his burial to be shameful and inglorious, but the, his inglorious burial was not to be because notice what he says. Very, very carefully, look at verse 9. They assigned his grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. This, this, is, this is very mysterious. This, this is very, he's being very Sneaky here. What what is he saying? You know what this is? This is yet another example of the absolute sovereignty of God over every detail of life. You see, God was in charge of the funeral arrangements of his son, not his murderers. The, the, The Messiah's killers, they wanted to toss his body into a pit full of criminals, but instead of that, what does the text say? It says he was with a rich man in his death. The question is, who is the rich man? And guess what? Matthew chapter 27 gives us the answer. The rich man, as it turns out, was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. A disciple of Christ, which means what we have here in verse 9 is an unmistakable prophecy made centuries before it ever even happened. Listen very carefully to Matthew 27. This is after the crucifixion. Christ is dead. Here's what the text says. When it was evening after the crucifixion, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb. He was with a rich man in his death. There you have it. From beginning to end, God was in control. 700 years before it ever happened, God made known how he would die, who would kill him, where he would be buried, and how it is and who it is who would bury him because God is in control over the events of human history, not human beings. God orchestrated the plan of salvation. It was not forced upon him by Satan or demons or anybody else. So the question I have for you here is, do you trust him? 
Not do you affirm intellectually his existence, but do you trust God to do what he does best, namely to run the universe with absolute ease? Or are you prone to fear and anxiety and anger and panic attacks and agoraphobia? Are you constantly angry because you're always trying to control people and control circumstances and control your situations and you darn well know that you are profoundly not in control? I just want you to know that the glorious, meticulous sovereignty of God over the death of his son is profoundly practical for you. You see, you need to know that the sovereignty of God over the details of the death of his son to bring you salvation lets you know that he is just as loving and intentional with your lives after your salvation. In other words, nothing has changed before the cross to after the cross. He is just as loving, just as intentional, just as sovereign over every single detail of your lives. He rules it all. He loves you. He cares for you. His glory is in the details of your life. It is all, all of it is working for your good and for the glory of God. Which brings us finally to the third riveting feature of his death. Number three, you need to know the supremacy after his death. You need to know the supremacy after his death. And you probably know this, but there is some debate out there as to who it is who's ultimately responsible for the death of Christ. And if you ask a number of people that question, you'll get a variety of different answers that are true to some degree, but they're not the whole truth. You see, some people say that the Jewish people, that they are the ones responsible for killing Christ, and that's true, but that's only partly true. And other people would say that the Roman soldiers, they are the ones, they are the ones liable, they are the ones responsible for the death of Christ, and that is, to be sure, part of the story, but that ain't the whole story. And other people would say, well, Herod or Pontius Pilate or you or me, we are the ones who killed Christ with our sin, and that is the explanation, and to be sure, that is some of the truth, but that is not the whole truth. You see, Isaiah in chapter 53 solves the debate for us as to who it is ultimately who put Christ to death. And he gives the answer, and the answer he gives almost takes our breath away. Look, if you dare, at verse 10. The text reads literally, but Yahweh took pleasure crushing him He caused him to suffer. Whenever his life would be offered as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh would be strong in his hand. Did you see it? Yes, the Jews and the Romans and Herod and Pontius Pilate and you and me, we are all complicit and involved, implicated in the death of Christ to be sure. But that is not the whole truth because the whole truth is according to the text is that it was God himself who killed Jesus. That's the whole truth. 
And your version might say, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that's true, it was. But the word that Isaiah actually used is that Yahweh took pleasure crushing him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The text says he caused him to suffer. What does this mean? Is this a case of cosmic child abuse, as some say? The father abusing his own son? False. Is this cruel, mean-spirited, malicious, bloodthirsty delight in torturing the innocent? I mean, is that what this is? Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it is the opposite of that. Yes, yes, the father was pleased to crush his own son. But if you've actually read the Gospels, then you know that the son was likewise pleased to be crushed by his father. The question is why? Why was the father pleased to crush his own son? He was pleased to do so, not because he didn't love his son, but precisely because he did love his son. He was pleased to crush him, not because he had some sick, demented pleasure in inflicting pain, but get this, he was pleased to do so because this was the secret weapon of the very plan of salvation. This was the key to the entire operation. The father and son conspired together before time to save some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And this is how it had to go down. If you're saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, this is what it took. A sin-bearing sacrificial, substitutionary death in the place of those who deserve to die. This was the essence of love. You remember 1 John 4.10, don't you? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. But then I want you to notice something very peculiar in verse 10. What Isaiah is about to say is either going to make zero sense or it's going to be the greatest news in the universe. And I don't know about you, I vote for option B. Look very carefully at verse 10, the second half. It says, whenever he, his life would be offered as a guilt offering, He would see his offspring. He would prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh would be strong in his hand. Did you notice? Did you notice what he said? Because he said what he said so fast that if you blinked, you missed it. He just said that the Messiah would offer his life as a guilt offering. And what did he say was the result of him offering his life as a guilt offering? He said that he, the Messiah, would see his offspring and prolong his days. Do you see that in the text? What does that mean? Because to offer your life as a guilt offering means you die. It means you are slaughtered. And in verse 9, it just said that the Messiah would be with a rich man in his what? 
in his death. You know where this is going. And in verse 8, it just said that he would be cut off from the land of the living. What's the point? What, 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 am I, what am I just going on about here? Do you see it? Isaiah has used three different ways to say that the Messiah was dead. But all of a sudden, in verse 10, he lives. All of a sudden, in verse 10, he lives. All of a sudden, in verse 10, he is alive to see what his death accomplished. Do you see that in the text? Look what it says. To see his offspring means that he would live again to see the souls saved by his sacrifice. To prolong his days means that after he died, he would rise triumphantly again to live eternally. Verse 11 says the same thing. From the oppression of his soul, he would see. He would be satisfied with his knowledge. What would he see? After his death, he would live again to see the souls saved by his sacrifice. He would live again to see those whom the Father gave him from every nation before time for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. He would live again to see those saved by his death. And what that means is that what we have here in the text are the very whisperings of the resurrection itself. And since this is Resurrection Sunday, I have no choice but to tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is literally the turning point of history. I have no choice but to tell you that this is literally the deal breaker of the universe. Do you know why? Because when Christ emerged out of the tomb, he did so not as a zombie He was not bloody and in critical condition. No, he emerged as a conquering warrior who gave the grave a beatdown and rose triumphant just as if he had never died in the first place. The grave gave birth to the Lord of life. Death delivered the one who would finally destroy it in the end. So the question is, did you know? Did you know here this morning when you walked through these doors, did you know? that the resurrection is the foundation of your joy. Did you know that? That the resurrection is the foundation of your joy because you want joy, don't you? Of course you do. That's what everybody wants. But did you know that the grave-defying, death-defying, science-defying resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of your joy. And you can have that. You know, invincible joy is yours for the taking. How exactly? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because I have three reasons why the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of your joy. And I close with this. Number one. The resurrection is the foundation of your joy. Because it is the historical verification that Christianity is absolutely true because it confirms the truth of everything else the Bible claims. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then this confirms everything else the Bible claims also. Number two, the resurrection is the foundation 
of your joy because it is the undeniable demonstration that Jesus Christ is everything he claimed to be, which is not just a rabbi who did nice things for people, but rather that he is God himself who came to earth as a literal historical human being. I mean, if the bones of Christ were in some Jerusalem grave somewhere, we might have right and cause to doubt that he was who he claimed to be. But why the resurrection means everything is because it validates everything that he said and everything that he did. Number three, the resurrection, believe it or not, kills sins like anger and anxiety and fear, and discouragement, and get this, even depression. In fact, the resurrection of Christ even has the power to triumph and even reverse our feelings of despair. Do you know why? Because the resurrection is the tangible proof and evidence that everything in your life, if you belong to Christ, that everything in your life is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I mean, if you're frequently angry, frustrated, fearful, moody, or grouchy, it means that you have your joy dependent upon things that are way too flimsy and puny. But think about it. If your Redeemer raised himself from the dead, And he did. If he crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside, and he did, then you know you have the guarantee that everything in your lives, if, and that's a big if, if you belong to Christ, in the end is going to be okay. Because if he's got death covered, If he's got the cure for death under his belt, and he does, then you know that everything in your lives leading up to your death is also under his absolute undisputed dominion. That is the foundation of your joy. And when that grips you, then and only then can you most meaningfully say, not only today, but on every Sunday, he has risen Yes, he has risen indeed. I'm going to pray. And then when I'm done praying, we have one final song. And this song is a, call it a special, call it a performance song. But the song that the band is going to do is based on and comes from Luke chapter 24, which if you remember that is when Christ meets the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and he walks them through the Old Testament scriptures one by one by one and says, that was me, that was me, that was me. And it's a glorious song and that's how we're going to end our service today. So let me pray. And I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for you, praying for you every week. Let's go to the Lord. Oh, risen Redeemer, you stand next to the Father. You rule all things. All things were created by you. You rule all things. And Lord, one day you will come to this planet and you will establish your kingdom and you will make all things be the way they ought to be. 
Oh Lord, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says that we have a living hope through your resurrection. I pray that that would grip us today. I pray that this would not be just a, a sentimental day out of the year where we feel some warm fuzzies, but I pray that we would be rocked by the reality of the resurre- resurrection that, re- that, that, uh, that changes and transforms and renovates everything in our lives. So Lord, please change us and transform us and help us to live in resurrection power and put your beauty and glory on display. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.